0: The Coates and Children's Library at Princeton University Library presents The Bibliophiles. Hi, this is Dr. Dana. Today my guest is multiple award-winning and New York Times bestselling author, Jewel Parker Rhodes. Already an author of Adult Works, Rhodes penned Ninth Ward, her first novel for children, in 2010. This led to two additional books in her Louisiana Girls trilogy, Sugar and Bayou Magic. In 2017, her work shifted to more urban settings, New York City for Towers Falling, Chicago for Ghost Boys, and Boston for her newest novel, Black Brother, Black Brother. Both beautiful and hard-hitting, Rhodes's books are about family connections, identity, racism, prejudice, violence, growth, pain, and hope. From a young girl fighting to survive Hurricane Katrina to a 12-year-old ghost struggling to overcome his brutal shooting in Chicago, Rhodes writes with honesty and a powerful empathy. She is a truly gifted storyteller who takes us into the difficult lives of people, connects us to them through her words, and then invites us to carry that new understanding into the real world and change it. Rhodes's books have won a Coretta Scott King Honor Award, an E.B. White Read-Aloud Award, a Walter Award, and have been New York Times bestsellers and Junior Library Guild selections. She holds a Master's and a Doctor of Arts from Carnegie Mellon, and is the Piper Endowed Chair at Arizona State University, where she also teaches writing and literature. Jewel Parker Rhodes, welcome to The Bibliophiles. Thank you so very much. Please tell us a little about your connection to and relationship with Louisiana and the Bayou.
1: Uh,
0: actually, it's a strange one because
1: I was born in Pittsburgh, and I was at Carnegie Mellon uh, studying writing, and my teacher said, write what you know. And what I knew was living in a ghetto in Pittsburgh. So I wanted to write what I could imagine, so I went home and I got a cookbook, uh, the Time Life cookbook on Creole and Acadian cooking, and in it it had recipes, but it also had narratives about Marie Laveau, a voodoo queen lived in the nineteenth century, and about Bayou Teche, Bayou Snake. And that night, I wrote my first short story that would then become the touchstone for my very first adult novel, Voodoo Dreams. And then I went on to write four more adult novels. Uh, but when I became a children's author, it was New Orleans that called me again, and I wrote Ninth Ward about Hurricane Katrina. So I actually think that in another life, I must have lived in Louisiana.
0: You write so deeply about the wildlife and the people. I know it, it's absolutely amazing, and I adore. Well, thank you. I should, maybe I
1: should be more humble. But, <laughs> like, no, I do feel as though that's my landscape. You know, I have been there before, and it's really special. And there's another really special connection. I was writing um, a start of a trilogy for adults, a mystery trilogy set in Louisiana, set in New Orleans. And the day that book published was the day that Hurricane Katrina hit. And I was so bittersweet because it's like, yes, a new book, but oh my God, these wonderful people that I've been visiting for like by then almost 25 years were going to go through this tragedy. And my books. Company sent me to New Orleans two weeks after Hurricane Katrina which was crazy but I got to see the devastation the watermarks, see the empty town and that's when I got my call and knew I was going to write a children's book about Hurricane Katrina and you've got to also understand that all my life I wanted to write a children's book so when I got the call in New Orleans that this was it, that I was going to write about Hurricane Katrina, I was overjoyed. But I didn't start writing Ninth Ward right then because I also need to hear the character's voice. So two years later, I'm living in Boston, and I hear that Hurricane Ike is coming to New Orleans. And I go, oh, no, not again. And that evening I went to sleep, and when I woke up, Literally, the first page and a half of Lanisha's voice was in my mind, and it poured out of me, and it's never, ever changed since, since publication, you know, or up until publication. So Lanisha says, they say, I was born with a call, a skin knitting covering my face like a glove. My mother died birthing me. I would have died, too, if Mama Yaya hadn't sliced the bloody membrane from my face. And it was very interesting. And so I'm a New Orleans girl, Louisiana girl, in my heart and spirit.
0: Ninth Ward is set in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. And the other two books are in more natural settings in Louisiana, the bayou and the brutal fields of a sugar plantation. But since 2017, your books have been decidedly more urban. Did this shift coincide with anything in your creative life?
1: Oh, great question, Dana. Actually, um, after I had done the Louisiana Girls trilogy, I felt I had pretty much done the stories I had wanted to tell so far. And I was looking for a topic. And my editor said, Joel, why don't you write about 9-11? And I said, nope, no way, because I knew that that would be very hard, very, very challenging, and also very emotionally draining. But then I got to thinking about it, and I thought of fifth graders in particular, and I thought how our young youth who weren't born until post-9-11, how they deserve to know how our country changed and what happened to our nation so I was flying a jet across to England, across the water, and something about being in the darkness, being over water, being in a plane and being cocooned, I all of a sudden was struck with this sense, schools, teachers, if I said it in a school, I think I can tell the story. But I did have a uh, pact with my editor that if I didn't do the book right or if I wasn't happy with it, we simply wouldn't publish it. So I was actually thrilled that I did Towers Falling. I was amazed that I got through Towers Falling. I cried all the time. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to take a rest. And then another editor, I, this time I had a new editor, said to me, Jewel, don't you want to write about the murder of young black boys? And I said, no. <laughs> you know, Are you nuts? Uh, my family said no. My kids said don't do it. My husband said don't do it. But again, I felt after several months, that same sort of deep call that that I have been practicing to be a children's writer, not so that I could write in my comfort zone, but that I could write and make art because our children deserve no less. So I felt, well, at least I can try. And again, we had another pact um, that if the book didn't turn out right, um I would never publish it. And Ghost Boys is very slim, but it took me two and a half years to write because I would write in spurts. I would write a little bit and then I'd sort of like have a breakdown and I'd read and I'd cry and I'd feel depressed and I'd go back and write a little bit. And it layered um very gradually over time. So my last two books, I was asked to write them. And if you know my entire canon, I never, ever write what people want me to write. I always write stories that come from my heart, my feelings, you know, my memories. And yet I think in accepting these requests from my publisher, um, I've come to realize that they must have seen in me an ability to do something that I didn't even know I had. Um, and I'm so glad I did those two books. I think they are impactful and important. And I'm very, very proud of them. And it's amazing. I think my whole life, I think, in all its trials and tribulations and, and wonder and joy, made me maybe old enough to be able to write for you to tell them these two very tough tales.
0: Ghost Boys was a New York Times bestseller. It is brutally powerful, both in the grimness of the character's death to the aftermath, where he must watch his family grieve and struggle, he also learns how his death connects to hundreds and hundreds of black boys who died of hate crimes. So the book is a hard read, but it is a rewarding one in that it exposes the ugly issues. But it also shows us how beautiful life is and how beautiful oh. our connection to life is. And you do this so, so simply and so poetically. And I really felt that the short chapter, Schools Out, demonstrates this. Would you read it to us?
1: I would love to, thank you. Winter, spring, summer. Every time I see a black kid, I yell, be safe. They never hear me. Walking my neighborhood, I wonder how anyone can laugh, be happy. The streets are dangerous. Gangs, bullies, drive-bys, police with guns. But people need to be happy, or else be like me, I shout. Dead, listless, weighted down with hard stories. Strange, though, I feel something's in the air, like a shift, something I've got to do. Lately, I've been lingering on my street. Nights, wild sunflowers in the vacant lot close up. Sense of chicken and collards blow through kitchen windows. I wish I could eat, play, hug my sister, pat a dog, stroke a cat. Without rest, I wander and watch, see a world that's no longer mine. Carlos was trying to make me happy, and I was happy for a bit. If I'd known I was going to die. Would I have become his friend? Truth is, even though it didn't last long, it was nice to have a friend.
0: So the final chapter in the book, to me at least, um, was ambiguous. What was it like to close this book?
1: It was a surprise. Uh, I did not know Jerome was going to speak spoken word poetry. Um, that was just an utter surprise to me. But to me, Jerome has made the transformation from being Jerome to being a ghost boy, to wandering the earth as a spirit, looking for people to bear witness to tragedy, to bear witness so the deaths don't happen again, to bear witness to social injustice, but also the responsibility with bear witness is to be empowered to do something so that there is justice or that there is recognition of a tragedy that has happened. And I think that empowering moment is really what I wanted to leave with you. So when Jerome Ghostboy says his last words, he says, Bear witness, my tale is told. Wake, only the living can make the world better. Live and make it better. Don't let me or anyone else tell this tale again. Peace out, ghost boy. And that recognition of live and make it better, I say to school kids, how many of you are living here? And everybody raises their hand. Me, me, me. And so what does that mean? And they'll shout back to me. They'll roar. Make it better. <laughs> and that's Jerome's message. Make it better. Make the world more peaceful. And as Ghost Boy, to make that transformation from Jerome to Ghost Boy, I also wanted to emphasize that Jerome, Emmett Till, um, Trayvon Martin and all the other youth that we have lost over decades of racism and racial bias, that they aren't just victims. In the African American culture, there's a belief that the dead never truly go away. And there's a phrase that says, every goodbye ain't gone, meaning that the spirits are still with you and they are accessible. So for me, for Jerome to transform into a ghost boy, he's taken on his really heroic mantle to search the world for young people who can live and make it better.
0: Please tell us about your new book, Black Brother, Black Brother.
1: Black Brother, Black Brother actually grew out of ghost boys. And that when I was reading Ghost Boys, I learned about the school-to-prison pipeline, whereby children of color, starting as young as, you know, toddler age, are discriminated against and given harsher punishments uh, than uh, their white classmates, are suspended at a far greater rate than white classmates, and are sent to prison or jail or juvenile detention at a far greater rate. Than their white classmates. Um, and I found this absolutely just appalling. Secondly, I am a mom of two wonderful biracial kids. And one is brown-skinned, like me, and one is fair-skinned, like her norwegian Scotch irish dad. And their life in America has been very different, because though we taught them to value their heritages equally, right about the time of coming of age, 11, 12, 13, how the world started responding to them was very different. And in particular for my son, the world made very, very clear in a lot of instances, we see you as a stereotype of a young black man. We see you as a danger. So in Black Brother, Black Brother, I write about two brothers, two biracial brothers, who have the same genetic heritage. One is fair, one is dark, and the darker one is suspended and sent to jail for supposedly committing a crime in school, which he didn't do. Um, and it's about that struggle to prove his innocence, that struggle for why is he discriminated against. And he decides that he wants to get back at the bully and initially it's you know about you know old hatred and you know i want him to feel humiliated but he learns the sport of fencing and fencing is about honor chivalry etiquette playing by the rules and through that sport he becomes a stronger young man and he can see the beauty of himself so clearly that though he wants to battle his bully with fencing what he's really battling for is you see me. You need to see me. But even if you don't, I'm still going to be me. I'm still, still going to be my great, wonderful self. And that's a really self-confident, uh, impressive sense of self-esteem that he gains in the course of the novel. A third thing, because my books are always complicated, <laughs> is that Black Brother, Black Brother is about colorism. About 40 years ago, I read in the Smithsonian Magazine that Alexander Dumas was a black man. And I'm like, what? You know, it's like thinking of like, you know, the, the Hamilton, the musical, you know, with this great diverse community. For me, it was the same kind of revelation that Alexander Dumas and the Three Musketeers and the Tom and Monte Cristo and the Man in the Iron Mask, they could have been black or biracial. Um, and sure enough about a decade ago, there was a book that came out called The Black Count by Tom Reese in which he demonstrated that Alexander Dumas was writing about his dad, who was a famous black count, general for Napoleon, who was a terrific, terrific swordsman. And so I got to thinking, you know, fencing is a terrific sport for getting into college, for seeing the world. And yet I would think that most kids of color don't even consider that as a possibility of the sport. We have the idea that that's for a certain class of people, you know, a certain color group of people. And what would it have meant if television, if movies had shown fencers of all colors? And it just so turns out that for the real Olympics, we had five African, African-American, you know, biracial kids fencing, as well as three Chinese-Americans. And this is due to the fact of a former Olympian, Peter Westbrook, who has a studio in uh, New York City, um, who really helped um, integrate, I think, the sport and, and change. So colorism, racism, racial discrimination, um, and also coming to terms with your own self-worth and needing no more, no less and your own ability to see yourself clearly and with love. So that's what Black Brother is all about.
0: <laughs> and all your books, all of them, such power of family. Both your chosen yeah. family, your, your blood family, your kin, the connection that goes beyond death into the supernatural world, all of them. It's just amazing.
1: Family uh, is so important. And actually, um when I was about eight months old, my mother left, uh, my sister and I, and she didn't return until I was in the third grade. So my family uh, was multi-generational household of grandparents and parents and an aunt and cousins. But it was my grandmother and her love and her teaching me the oral black tradition, telling me stories on the porch that really, I think, soothed my soul and kind of repressed any bitterness. But I was a very, very lonely kid, and I've got to say, besides wanting to write children's books for kids like me who never saw themselves in children's books, I also wanted to have a happy, strong family, um, and I am so blessed that I have been able to do that. So I think in some sense, I'm trying to show all the variations of a family, whether it be a grandmother or, you know, a community member who sort of adopts a child or just an extended family or even a teacher in a library who acts as a parental influence. I'm trying to give kids that sense that, you know, there are all kinds of untraditional ways or Actually, they are traditional, but, you know, that they're, they're not just the nuclear family model of having family. And that's okay as long as you have relationships with people who love, love, love you.
0: I'd like to end the interview by asking you what you've heard from readers about your books and what you have to say to the future kids who are going to discover your books and either recognize their own lives or become newly aware of the realities your books address?
1: Oh, wow. What a big question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: what I hear from kids is that I've been really lucky. They generally like all my books. And I'm very proud of that because all my books are very different. I, they don't follow a pattern at all from historical to contemporary to boys to girls to a mixture of cultures from Vietnamese to Chinese to Cajun. Uh, so I'm very, very proud that they say, oh, I like all your stories. And I think that's because I'm very plot-oriented, and yet there are layers. I try to put in layers of imagery and symbolism so that if you went back and reread it, there's more to discover in the stories. So I think that kids with their wonderful intellectual curiosity um, enjoy that, you know, that it sort of sticks with their ribs. But for kids in the future, I would say I take writing for youth as a sacred pledge. I am writing one for Legacy, longevity. I'm trying to think not about what sells today. I don't care whether my books sell or not. I'm going to write what I'm going to write, you know, and 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 so be it, you know. Right, publishing them is gravy, and I'm honored that I'm being published. But I'm really trying to make art to leave as a legacy for children. The other thing is is that I'm writing also for teachers and for parents. That I think a book. Gets amplified in its power when you can open up a subject and a kid can ask questions and a teacher is there and a parent is there. So it's not just about, you know, go off and, and be on your own and, and absorb this book, but I'm wanting to like make more connections, more social connections, make more familial connections. And I remember in particular one time in Connecticut, they had read Towers Falling and a stewardess was sitting there with her son on a, a Skype. And she said, that day of 9-11, I was supposed to go to work. And something told me, don't go, don't go. And I wasn't going to go. And so by not going, I survived. And you could just see her son's face. He had never, ever heard the story. And then like a second later, you could see this kid sort of begin to stuttering because he realize that if his mother had gone to work that day, he would not have been born. To me, that was powerful. Also, for ghost boys, I like the fact that and all my books do that, that it takes, uh, everyone needs to address social injustices. It's not just black people, you know, brown people, Latino, white people, Chinese people, Asian, Native American. Everyone needs to address it. And so for Ghost Boys, it's a reminder that we need all of society, all kids to say, I'm going to be a critical thinker and live my life the way that I believe, that I think kids don't have to accept what their parents necessarily believe, particularly if their parents are still embedded in cultural racism. And I wanted to give kids that strength and remind them that the love that they had in their hearts in fifth grade to keep it when they went into the voting box when they turned 18 years of age. Um, so I hope my books do last, and I hope that they are talked about with loved ones.
0: Jewel Parker Rhodes, thank you so much for coming on The Bibliophiles today.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you.